At this time, I'd like to welcome to our pulpit uh, for Sunday in the Shade last month, Dave Allen. If you were here on, uh, for Sunday in the Shade last month, Dave preached for us on the Parsonage lawn, and he's kind enough to join us again this morning. Dave, come and teach us from God's Word. then and not today. Um, it's good to be back um, with you uh, as the Church of Jesus Christ, the Greater Church, Capital C Church. Um, and uh, it's good to also see some friends in, in the congregation. Um, I see some neighbors. I see some, some friends, someone that I went to school with, as well as my architect. And um, I also saw some people uh, in, in the lobby that probably know me from coaching some Shiba basketball. And to them, I, and to all of you, I, I say, you know my need for sanctification. So um, I stand before you as one that needs this sermon as much as anyone else. Um, we are uh, going to be t- talking about the John chapter 11. So our brother read from that chapter. We're actually going to finish the chapter today because it's a wonderful story. It's the seventh sign that John talks about in his gospel. We'll finish the whole chapter, so if you put your finger in John 11, you're good for this morning. We live in a world that's populated with signs. Signs that instruct us how to drive. Signs that tell us where to line up the boat. Signs that tell us when we can cross the street. Where we can park and where not to park. I actually saw a sign that was against a brick wall that said, don't even think about parking here. That's what the sign actually said. Think about one of the signs that you passed on your way to church this morning. I live two blocks from here, and I counted 12 signs that I passed, (coughs) excuse me, before I came to church. Now, some of you saw the speed limit signs, but paid no attention because you were late. I understand that. I've been there, too. Some signs we expect to see, and, and some we, we don't. I remember one time when uh, I was a teenager, uh, we, as a family, drove my sister to college. Now, my parents had six children, and we were all in the car as we drove my eldest sibling, my sister, uh, to college in Indiana from Pennsylvania. And as we were driving, my dad coming home, my mom had the map, but my dad had the wheel. And he was certain that the road that he took was a shortcut on our way home from Indiana to Pennsylvania until we saw the sign that said, Welcome to Michigan. And if you know your U.S. geography, going through Michigan. That's okay. Should I hold it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. So when I'm done, I can drop the mic, right? All right. So we saw this sign that said, um, welcome to Michigan. If you know your U.S. geography, going through Michigan from Indiana to Pennsylvania is not a shortcut. It was quite cold in the car the rest of the way home, and I'm not talking about the weather. My dad was usually pretty good with directions. But um, what we really needed was a very simple directional sign that said, this way to Pennsylvania, and we would have been fine. And the Gospel of John is actually called often the Book of Signs, 
John was writing in the latter half of the first century to, to not only first-generation Christians, but also second-generation Christians. And he chose to include seven specific miracles. Of all the things that Jesus did, he chose seven miracles, and he called them signs. And these were signs, directional signs, that pointed people to Jesus, and specifically to Jesus' authority and his power. And in his day, as in ours, there were different religions, there were different political systems, there were different cultural systems that were constantly competing for the authority over people's lives, to manage people's lives, to influence people's lives. And John wrote his gospel to point people to Jesus as the supreme authority, as the ultimate power, the only one who can save and who can rule justly and lovingly. His world needed someone to save it, someone to rule it, and so does ours. And so do we personally, our own worlds. We need someone to save us, and we need someone to master us, someone to follow. And out of the many things that Jesus did, John highlights these seven miracles, and we're going to look at the seventh one today as a directional sign to point us to Jesus. And before we begin, I have this question, what direction are you pointed in? Where are you headed this morning? If you could survey your last week, are your, are your affections, are your intentions, are your plans, are your emotions pointed toward Jesus? Because that's God's word in the Gospel of John is asking us as well. Maybe you've made some wrong turns like my dad, but in your life, it's time to get back on track and get back on the road. And John today is pointing us to Jesus. So let's follow the signs and get some clear direction, okay? Uh, sign, the seventh miracle. Morning, as we look at John's seventh sign, the seventh miracle he chose to include in his gospel. Now, this miracle involves some of Jesus' very best friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And it was happening in one of his very favorite towns, the town of Bethany, which was just a couple miles away from the city of Jerusalem. He spent a lot of time in their home. We learn from the other gospels, in, in fact, that Jesus spent every night of Passion Week, Holy Week, in Bethany, except, of course, Friday and Saturday. Bethany was also the home of Simon the leper, who Jesus healed. And so Bethany is a special city. It was as if it was a, a refuge for Jesus. In fact, it was the one place on earth where he was always accepted and never rejected. So it was a special place. And he was with special people. And our story begins with sisters Mary and Martha sending word to Jesus that Lazarus, their brother, who Jesus loved, was gravely ill. And I don't know if you noticed, as our brother was reading it, Jesus' reaction to the news is extremely odd. It's very uncharacteristic. It seemed uncaring. And it was confusing to Mary and to Martha and the disciples who had already seen him heal others, including the sister's neighbor, Simon. What is going on here? 
Well, I, I can understand their, you can understand their, their situation and feeling, right? If one of your best friends called you from his deathbed, would you say, I'll see you in a couple days? No. So they were confused. And this first point that I want to show you is, is how confused they really were. They were confused in three different ways in this painful circumstance. First of all, they were confused with his actions. They were really confused with his actions, or better, better said, his inaction. He didn't get up right away and come. And, and we read that he loves Mary and Martha and Lazarus, but he stayed there two more days. He waited two days. He just waited. And then he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. It's time. The rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews were trying to stone you there. You want to go back now? You wait. We think you should, when we thought you should go, and now you're going when we think you should stay away. Now, which is it? And, and isn't this dangerous, Lord? Your detractors had stones in their hands the last time we visited. They were, they were really confused about his actions. But not only about his actions, secondly, they were confused about his words as well. We read in verse uh, 9, when he heard this, or verse 4, when he heard this, when he heard uh, the, the request from Mary and Martha, he said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. What, what, is, what is he saying? Later on, he said in verse 11, after, after he had said this to his disciples, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. And his disciples were, if he's asleep, he'll wake up. must be getting better. He's sleeping it off. Jesus was being very cryptic with his friends. He was speaking truthfully, but they didn't get what he was saying. They were not on the same page. They were confused with his actions. They were confused with his words. So thirdly, with what's going to happen next. So when he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe, and he says, let's go to him. Thomas says to the rest of the disciples, all right, let's go so that we can die with him. The disciples just weren't getting it. <clears throat> Mary and Martha, we're going to find out, were also confused. Thomas was, was like, I guess we're going to a funeral, and then after that, a stoning. It's the, end, it's the end of it for all of us, right? That's what Thomas was thinking. And I got to tell you, as I read this passage over and over again the last few weeks, I found myself really sympathizing with the disciples. Because in many circumstances... I'm confused about what God's doing. I wonder if he's aware of how difficult my situation is. And I ask God, why aren't you doing something? Give me a word that I can understand. What's going to happen next? Have you felt that way? That's a lot of life, isn't it? Do you ever get confused? <laughs> by his words, you know, Jesus, I think I know what you said in your word, but it's not working out right now with me here. Did I miss something? Can you be a little more specific, please, Lord? And we are confused about what happens next in many of our difficulties. 
We project what we think is going to happen, or we worry about what might happen, or we, we manipulate because not being clear about what's happening next. Our confusion, like the disciples, like the sisters, is really rooted in a misunderstanding of God's purpose in our tough times. And sometimes, many times, God allows us to be in the dark about his specific purpose. We know what his general purpose is, where he's leading us, but in the specifics, we're in the dark. Why would he do that? We learn throughout all of scripture, he does that in order to draw us closer to him in trust and in hope and in faith. Look at Jesus' words when he learns of the circumstances of of the sisters and Lazarus. He says, the sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. That's a statement, a grand statement of God's purpose. Although it's clouded in mystery for the sisters. And when you compare that statement to the sixth sign, the last time I was with you talking about the blind beggar, the healing of the blind beggar, what did he say about that circumstance? Chapter 9, verse 3. It's almost the same, same sentence. When the disciples said, did this man sin or did his parents sin? You know, why, is, why is he blind? Jesus said, this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Another beautiful statement of purpose, God's purpose. Not a lot of details, but God's purpose. And so God will communicate his ultimate purpose to us, and he does that over and over again in Scripture. But he allows us to be in the dark about his specific purpose because he wants us to draw close. He wants us to trust. He wants us to put our faith and our hope in him. That's why many of you are in the dark right now. He wants you to trust. So on, on the way to Bethany, I imagine the disciples are thinking about a funeral while Jesus is thinking about a miracle. They're preparing to get hit by stones. Jesus is getting ready to remove a stone, right? Before that, though, Jesus knew and he felt that he was walking into a deep, deep storm of trauma and sorrow. And you know what we discover? We discover that our Savior, our Master, is not impervious to sorrow and to trauma. He felt it deeply. And I'm glad, because that means he feels what I feel. He knows how you feel because it. And he also shows us the way through trauma. The way through trauma is to speak truth through trauma. Look what happens in verses 17 through 37. On his arrival, Jesus found Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. So he wasn't in a coma. Lazarus was dead. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. And when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she ran out. She went out to meet him, but Mary stayed home. As Jesus enters this sorrow, notice there's three effects. 
First of all, trauma makes us question God. Look at Martha's words. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She saw Jesus heal. She saw Jesus do miracles. If you had been here, this question, this wouldn't have happened. Trauma makes us question God. Later on, we find out that, that Mary, Mary comes out, that Martha says, the teacher is here, he's asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went out to meet him. Now, Jesus hadn't entered the village yet, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going out to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus saw where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said the exact same thing her sister said. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Mary's feeling the same way, questioning the timing of Jesus, questioning maybe even the care of Jesus. Even the neighbors were questioned in verse 36 and 37. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Trauma makes us question God. But notice, not once did Jesus condemn the questions of the beloved sisters. He didn't question their reactions. He didn't say, put your tears away even though he knew the end of the story. In fact, what is so incredibly powerful here is that, that that trauma, death in this case, made Jesus sad as well. And it made Jesus angry too. Because we read here, when Jesus saw them weeping, deeply moved and come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled him. Where have you laid him, he said. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. A better translation would be Jesus burst into tears. He was deeply moved, he was troubled, and he wept. Our Savior felt the trauma and the sorrow. The word for deeply moved is, uh, describes in other Greek literature the snorting of a horse. So deeply moved was not so much about sorrow as much as it was about, about agitation, maybe even anger. And the word trouble depicts the same idea, there's, there's, a, there's a deep, deep stirring or agitation. And so here we see when Jesus is facing humanity's greatest enemy, death, and he saw what it was doing to his best friends, it made him sad, yes, but it made him agitated and angry as well. This is not what the father intended for his children. Trauma makes Jesus sad and angry. That's the second effect of trauma. He feels what we feel. So understand, please, whatever grief you find yourself in, whatever difficulty you find yourself in, whatever wall you're facing, Jesus feels it. 
He knows what it's like, and he doesn't like it any more than you do. And when you draw to your Savior, and you draw close to him in your difficulty, he feels it. That embrace is real. The consequences of sin in our world and in our lives makes Jesus sad, agitated, and angry. And that's why we read in Psalm, saves those who are crushed, brokenhearted, and saves those who are crushed in spirit. He's close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Trauma makes us question God. Trauma makes Christ sad and, and angry. But in the midst of it, notice trauma offers us a choice. A choice to keep believing. And that's the third effect of trauma. It really offers us a choice. Are we going to keep believing? Jesus speaks truth to his friends in the middle of the trauma. He doesn't just empathize. He speaks truth. The Son of God joins in the grief, but he also speaks truth into it. And really, this is what the sisters needed most. Jesus said, Jesus speaking truth. Jesus says to Martha, your brother will rise again. Martha says, I know. I know he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. But Jesus says, it's not a matter of when. It's a matter of who. And you're talking to the resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life, he says. It's me, Martha. And the one who believes in me, even though they die, will live. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Jesus is speaking truth in the middle of their difficulty. But then notice, he doesn't just speak truth, he presses her for a decision. He says, Martha, do you believe this? One of my reactions in thinking through this passage was, come on, Jesus, maybe just, shouldn't you back off a little bit? She just lost her brother. But Jesus presses in into the trauma with the truth, and he says, you have a choice. Do you believe this? And Mary echoes the heart of Martha when she says, Lord, you know, if, if, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died, but I believe. And then they walk to the gravesite together. My question here um, of myself and, and to you is, do you bring your questions to God? Even, even the ones that you think he might not like, the brokenhearted questions. You can. He wants you to. He won't turn you away. In fact, he'll do the exact opposite. He'll draw you in close. Do you ever wonder aloud and ask him, why weren't you here earlier? Or where are you when I needed you? He's not offended by that. He's not turned off and he won't condemn. He understands. And then he'll speak truth into that confusion. And he'll speak truth into that trauma. But then he'll go the next step. Because he loves you. And because he wants to grow you. He'll take the next step and he'll press you for a choice. 
Okay, here's the truth. It's in my word. Are you going to keep believing? Do you believe that he can bring life to whatever dead end you're facing? That he can bring beauty for ashes? Because when we stare at Jesus in our prayers while we're going through difficulties, he is eventually going to say, I am the resurrection. I am the life. Do you still believe that? And so the family and, and Jesus and the grieving neighbors reach the grave site. And now Jesus is going to clear all the fog, all of their confusion. He's going to remove all mystery about the last few days. And he's going to prove his power. And verses 38 through 44, they're standing now right, before, right at the grave site. And it says, Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Does that sound familiar? A cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Do you realize within a few days, Jesus himself will be laid in a cave and it will be covered with a stone? And I, I wonder, and it is just a wonder, maybe the very thought of his passion contributed to that deep feeling that he had when he saw his friends going through the trauma. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha raises her finger, but Lord, <laughs> by this time there's a bad odor because he's been there for four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Remember, he said, the sickness will not end in death. It's for God's glory, so that the son, God's son may be glorified through it. So Jesus is getting ready to prove his power. And it wasn't necessarily for their comfort. It was certainly for, partly for their comfort. It wasn't necessarily for their convenience. The reason he was going to show his power was to show his purpose that he is all about resurrection. And so this wonderful statement, this sickness will not end in death, is really a statement of purpose in all that he does. So they take away the stone and Jesus looks up and he says to, to his father, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. He must have been praying on the walk to Bethany. I thank you that you have heard me already. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. This is the real purpose for his seventh sign. And you'll notice that not only is his power according to his purpose, but his power is activated through prayer. Jesus could have healed Lazarus from his sickness prior to him dying. He could have easily granted the sister's request. But see, God was up to something much, much, much greater. The father and the son were going to be glorified, magnified in such a way that there would be no dispute from the people there that Jesus was not from here. He's from God. And so Jesus calls out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out. Scripture says, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth 
around his face. Put yourself there. Every mouth drops wide open. People were shouting. People were, were, were celebrating. I would have been in shock, probably in fear as well. The grave clothes smelled, but his body didn't. People stumbling over each other as, as they tried to help unravel his hands and his feet. It was probably bedlam, but there was also like blessing and celebration all at the same time. Because somebody just knocked on a coffin and told a dead man to crawl out. Is there any question at this point that Jesus is who he claimed to be? Not at all. The water to wine, the first sign, he shows he has power over water. He has power to heal without being physically present. The next sign, he has power over disease and he feeds the 5,000. He has power to multiply substances and, and, and elements. And then he has power over the weather in the storm. He has power over time when he heals the blind man who had been blind since birth. And here the climax, the seventh sign, he demonstrates his power over humanity's greatest enemy. Our greatest enemy, our greatest fear, every man's destiny, death. And he says no to death. And in the words of C.S. Lewis, death itself started to work its way backwards. Do you realize it's easier for Jesus to call a dead man out of a cave as it is uh, to, for you to call your kids out of the other room? I mean, because they may not listen to you, you know. <laughs> Jesus said, I'm the resurrection. And in Lazarus, he didn't just cure a sickness. He reconstituted dead flesh. He reanimated organs that had stopped working, a heart that had stopped breathing, a brain that had no waves. He reversed it all. And he had even told his disciples, I didn't realize this until this week, all the way back in John chapter 5, John, that he could do that. Because in John chapter 5, verse 24, he said, Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. He had already told them that he could do it. The thing we realize about his power, and this third thing we realize about his power, his power always is according to his purpose. His power is activated by prayer. And finally, his power is all about restoring and resurrecting. That's why he came. Paradise was lost. Paradise is regained through Christ and his resurrection. In fact, his final act recorded in the Bible, in the book of Revelation chapter 21, still future in time for us, says it all. His final act, it says, he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Paradise regained. And so this seventh sign shows us God's purpose and his power and his intent for all things to be made new. And near the end of this story, this incredible event, I love his, the final recorded words out there at the grave site. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Take off the grave clothes 
and let him go. One of my favorite worship songs is entitled Resurrecting, and it contains this chorus. By your spirit, I will rise from the ashes of defeat. The resurrected king is resurrecting me. In your name, I come alive to declare your victory. The resurrected king is resurrecting me. Paul could have written that song because he said in Philippians 3.10, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Even the person who trusts Christ, who has passed over from death to life, needs to see it worked out daily, and it is the power of the resurrection that sanctifies us. That changes us. Paul prayed in Ephesians 1, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know his incomparable great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Jesus from the dead. We're gifted with resurrection power. And it's available to you and to me to conquer our habits and, and to conquer our hang-ups and, and our heartaches. That's, he's given us that resurrection, Paul tells, power. And it is a lifelong process. Paul tells us in Philippians 1.6, he's confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It's a lifelong process, but that resurrection power is for you and for me if you know Christ. And so when life's got us confused or all tied up in some sort of trauma or we're facing a dead dead end, we need to listen to Jesus, speak truth into our confusion, speak truth into our trauma, and we need to allow the Holy Spirit to lead us through our questions and our frustrations to the side of the Father so that we can hear his purpose. And in prayer, we ask God to work the power of resurrecting and the power of restoring in us. And when he presses us in the middle of that and asks us, do you believe? We need to respond like the sisters. Lord, I do believe. I do believe. He's calling you. Take off the grave clothes on a daily basis, to take off the grave clothes and walk out and to go. Walk in the power of his resurrection because the resurrecting king is all about resurrecting me and you. Let's pray. Oh God, we bless you. We thank you for showing here in the gospel of John your incredible power. We confess that in the the mud and the muck of everyday life, we forget the incredible, mighty strength that you exerted at Christ's resurrection and that it is available for us. We confess that. And thank you that, like with the sisters, you don't condemn us, you don't turn us away, but you embrace us in our frustration and our confusion. But thank you that you don't leave us there just just empathizing and caring for us, but you press us with the question, what now? Do you believe? Lord, we say to you, we believe, help us in our unbelief. 
We believe in the power of the resurrection. We're grateful for the day when we will hear your voice and our bodies will be resurrected. But for today, right now, would you by your Holy Spirit remind us that we have that power to walk through our traumas, to reach out to that neighbor, to overcome that habit, Make us confident that that will bring us to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. And that resurrecting power is with us because you are with us. In your name, Jesus, we pray and thank you. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Dave.